can't get enough of football? Chance, goal, superhuman, special, special goal. Incredible, just incredible. Now you can get the inside look. Welcome to Football Insiders, your home for informed, insightful and independent opinion, news and talk on football from the team behind Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. Oh, what an introduction! Hello and welcome to Football Insiders, the podcast home of Fair Play Publishing and the Football Writers Festival. This is the second in our series, or sorry, the third in our series of sharing sessions from the 2020 Football Writers Festival, which was held in November in Manly. And this one's particularly topical for 2020. One of the the good news items of 2020 was the fact that we won the right to co-host the 2023 Women's World Cup. So this session is, is about that and how we make the most of it and how we ensure that there's genuine and lasting legacy uh, from that event. It's entitled Opportunity Knocks, Making 2023 Count for the Next 100 Years of Women's Football. It's hosted by Emma Kemp, the Deputy Sports Editor of Guardian Australia, and includes Dr Michelle O'Shea from the University of Western Sydney, who writes uh, quite a lot on these issues around legacy and major events. Tom Samani, Alan Stadgett, neither of whom need an introduction really, Rose Valente from Ladies League, and Greg Werner, co-author of the Encyclopedia of Matildas. Over to Emma. So this is a really interesting panel because I think we all remember the moment when Australia and New Zealand bid were awarded hosting rights for the 2023 World Cup. Um, I certainly remember that video that went viral from inside FFA headquarters. We've seen many a furrowed brow inside those headquarters over the years, but none so nervous as as Lydia Williams, Steph Catley, um, some of the other girls who were sitting in there and some of the bid team members along with James Johnson. And that moment afterwards, of course, when they discovered that it was actually going to happen and it seemed unbelievable. And while it is unbelievable and fantastic, I think that's not the end game and I think that's what this whole discussion is about. It's like, well, how can we actually create something that lasts and has longevity for the women's game in Australia and in New Zealand? Um, And we've got a full house here who are going to solve all those problems within an hour. (laughs) So I'll give them each an introduction and I'll try not to get too Bridget Jones about it. So we've got Alan Stajic, played for eight years, um, Not really. No. Sort of. <laughs> in the New South Wales State League, um, you were appointed head coach of women's football program at N-Swiss. He just told me he won the W League with Sydney FC not four times, but he won two premierships and two championships, including the double 2009. Yeah, not counting, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, you, of course, you were in charge of the Matildas for two Asian Cup tournaments, the 2015 World Cup, where Australia won their first ever knockout game of either gender, and the 2016 Rio Olympics. And under Alan, the Matildas peaked at number four in the world in 2017. He is now the head coach of A-League team, the Central Coast Mariners. We've got Rose, Rose Valente, um, the founding <laughs> founder and managing director of the Ladies League, which is an all-female uh, online fan media publication, which you created, I believe, due to an underrepresentation of women yep. in, in the men's game or in the game in general? It started as the men's game um, because I didn't like how few women there were out there talking about the men's game, even though we're not journalists, we're just fans. Um, And then it slowly merged into the women's game. The more people wanted to hear more about women's football and now we talk about both. 
Good. And they've got a, a brilliantly irreverent Twitter page if mm. anybody is interested. Who's next? Uh, Michelle O'Shea. Um, she's a senior lecturer in sports management management at Western Sydney University. Um, her research interests are pretty wide-ranging. They're sport, culture and society, particularly re related to issues of gender and diversity, sport organisation, community and societal impact, sports marketing and social media communications, fandom and sport financial sustainability. Yeah, it's a, it's a mouthful. <laughs> Tom Samani might be a mouthful too. So uh, Tom's currently the head coach of New Zealand's Football Ferns. He's been there since 2018 and he previously coached the Matildas in two separate stints. The USWNT, a number of teams in the US and WSL, including Orlando Pride and New York Power, as well as a technical advisor and assistant to the Canadian women's team at the 2015 World Cup. He had a 250-game-plus playing career in Scotland and England before joining Canberra City in the NSL in 1984 and has also held too many coaching positions really to list. <laughs> but has been in the coaching box at the past five editions of the Women's World Cup and will take New Zealand to the Tokyo Olympics and the 2023 World Cup, I believe. Uh, not yet. Unless not you yet. something I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and we've got Greg Werner at the end there, who is co-author of the Encyclopedia of Matildas and is currently working on his second book to be published in 2022. Which book is that, Greg? Uh, am I allowed to mention the title? Uh, it's called Grassroots to Green and Gold, A Century of Australian Internationals. So it will cover uh, Australian international football, including the history prior to the internationals in five separate chapters based along a chronological timeline and the growth of the game. And I'm being helped by my good friend over there, Mr. Howe, in uh, bringing some statistical information from the, uh, the wonderful world of the Bureau of Stats. <laughs> Great. Welcome, all of you. <laughs> look, before delving into the women's game in this country, I thought it would be good to look back at some previous World Cups and what we could possibly learn from those. And I'm going to ask Tom first because you were with New Zealand in France. What, what did you observe there, if anything, that we could possibly utilise and use here to create a legacy? Um. It's difficult to know that when you're sort of in the mix because you're, you're kind of, you're not sort of involved in the event, to be honest, because you're, you're with the team and you're, you're going from game to game. I, th I think, um, so I don't know what kind of legacy, but the difference obviously is that France is a, a natural football country, is a number one sport. So it, it's always a, a little bit different there. To be honest, I thought the country that did the World Cup the best was actually Germany because Germany managed somehow to, in 2011, it, it was like the whole country was actually aware of the World Cup. Mm. Um, the, the fan base was huge. The, the, it was alive everywhere you went. France wasn't quite as good as that, but I think, you know, if I look back at something that was done really well, then I would go back to the German World Cup and, and the things that they did well, things that were going on in the city, and, and it was so it was so so visible wherever you went and i think that was the key thing that happened in that world cup stage what did you notice about 2015 and just over the years um with the matildas and in the international game what have you noticed about the changes in professionalism 
the pressure on the players that comes with that, all those sorts of things. Yeah, look, I think it's obviously changed uh, dramatically every World Cup. I think especially the last two or three, there's been a significant um, upswing in the level of professionalism and, and care and attention about the game worldwide. Um, there's still obviously a large chunk of the world where women's football's not really on the radar. A lot of Latin countries in South America don't really ever only just started, you know, paying any any kind of attention. A lot of Eastern Bloc European countries still aren't sort of enamoured with putting a lot of resources into women's football. So I wouldn't say it's really grown across the whole globe yet, but in the ones like Western Europe, uh, particularly Asia has been strong for a long time. Um, we've seen, you know, the transition in Australia over the last four or five years. America's been strong for 20 or 30 years. Canada, similar, basically because of the college system. But especially over the last five or six years, we've seen, you know, professionalism come to the fore in terms of professional clubs like Lyon and PSG, Arsenal, Chelsea. But there's still only really probably eight really big clubs in the world. Um, and there's probably really only 15 countries who really take it, you know, seriously as they do their men's football. So as much as there's been a, a massive growth um, in TV audiences and crowds in in all those different aspects and metrics that we like to count, there's still a long way to go, I think, for equality of, I guess, appreciation of the game. And I yeah. guess Canada was an example of that, uh, that it was certainly on that trajectory of, of recognition. Um, and, and it's a country a lot like ours in terms of where football is not the number one sport. So they had to work hard to get sell-out crowds for their own country, um, but still in a lot of countries that didn't involve Canada, the, you know, the crowds were minimal and, and the interest it was high, but it probably wasn't as high as what I thought it would be. It's interesting that you you mentioned metrics and crowds and audiences and all that sort of stuff because I, I guess France 2019 was sort of seen as that landmark moment, I suppose, when the world really woke up to women's football in a way that it, it hadn't before. But, I mean, for all that, 2023 will be a, a follow-on from that and no doubt it will have grown from that and the football ferns will sell out every stadium the matildas will sell out every stadium but i mean what happens after that you know after the 2015 asian cup which benita mentioned before the Socceroos won it and it was a fairy tale story for maybe a week and then it disappeared in a puff of smoke and i think we can all agree the a-league hasn't exactly flourished since then so i guess the the question is how do we bottle that momentum whether it's administration, infrastructure, or whether it's, um, I'm going to ask Michelle about those intangible factors. You know, I think Foz said it before, what even is football culture in Australia and how do we use that World Cup to really create that going forward? Mm. And I think it's interesting because um, it's this sort of this notion of calculative rationalities. We talk about numbers and we talk about numeracy, um, but in doing so, sometimes it can conceal the latent ongoing practices. Uh, and certainly my research very much, uh, I think, illuminates some of those, those issues. And, and I, I sort of think a little bit about progress narratives as being somewhat dangerous um, because, you know, just looking back to some research I did and, and a lot of my research looks at um, issues around gender inclusivity and diversity and... Uh, there was this particular CEO of a very large funded Australian national sport organisation that um, that said, oh, we've got one of those, and that was a black woman. So we've kind of ticked the, the box. Uh, and so I somehow feel, and, and this is 
where I'm going to by virtue of um, this notion of culture and numeracy and and sort of numbers can conceal these these ongoing issues. So, yeah, I think part of the important narrative is to own the issues. Uh, and, and so certainly one of the issues is not just women's presence on the field, on the pitch. That's great. We're starting to see a hell of a lot um, more sort of uh, professionalism in the game. We're, we're seeing female athletes paid as, as um, they we're moving toward that, that equity. But I also think there's a, a very big difference between equality and equity. And that's, again, where I go back to the notion of numbers. So, yeah, we've, we've got a level playing field, but... You know what? Are, what are the valuing? What are the, how are we valuing um, or, or otherwise? So I think that's certainly something we've really got to get to when we look at this notion of legacy planning, and that of itself is really complicated as well. So gender parity is part of the legacy then, and if so, yeah. what does gender parity look like to you? Yeah, and I think that's that's the you know I think one of the the big issues, and 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 that is to to say particularly when we look at governance and boards, it's um we're always aiming for for fifty fifty. Uh, and while I think that's an interesting starting point, it can also lead to aspersions around um, you're only being selected because of your gender or because you meet that um, that box that we're we're trying to to tick. Uh, so yeah, I, I think what we're sort of seeing hopefully is a movement towards mentoring um, and support and enabling in in those spaces. But again, I, I go to this issue of. Um, I, I guess certainly the administrators I've spoken to in a, a rather large project that I did involved 60 administrators and, and four national sport organisations. And it very much rang true that we've, we're there, equity's been achieved. And again, it was that well, we, we're, we're moving towards equity by virtue of numbers. Um, but again, I feel like that conceals the, the ongoing issues. And that's what my research found when I sat down and I spoke to the female sport administrators and the stories that they shared were quite appalling. Um, and that data was only collected uh, six years ago. So, yeah, that's sort of something I think hopefully as an audience I might suggest to you is that while the narrative and the change, it is, it is starting to come, if we actually speak to the female administrators and we actually listen to and hear about their lived experiences, it doesn't paint a really great story. Yeah. So this really speaks to wider societal change as well. Yeah, absolutely. And some new research we're doing, which is looking at schoolgirls and, and their access and ability to play. And the same narratives run through. Uh, and that is we're looking at a women's sports roadshow. Well, it's all very well and good to get girls, you know, kicking footballs or, or, or playing basketball. But part of that narrative is actually getting boys in to see that there's a value and that boys and girls can play. Um, and they ought be treated, you know, the same. So interesting to see what that research tells us too. That's a really interesting point. And we're going to get back to um, female coaches um, in both the women's game and the men's game. But for now, I just want to briefly touch on the W League because that's our predominant women's competition in Australia. Um, I noticed in FFA's recent 11 principles that the, they want the W League to basically be one of the world's top leagues that's pretty ambitious especially given at the moment when it's limited to nine teams and we don't have a full home and away season I don't think it's impossible but I just I wonder how we're supposed to financially compete with those big European leagues and with the NWSL um, and I'm hoping that Stadge or Tom might be able to tell us Tom, um, <laughs> thanks, Dutch. Um, 
Well, I, can I be honest? I think that's approaching it the wrong way. I, I don't think that, and I'll say this honestly, the, the, w, the way women's football is now, the, the W League will, will, if it keeps going in the same trajectory, will never be one of the top leagues in the world. But I don't think that's that important. I think what is important and what we should be saying is, how can we make the W League the best that we can make it? Rather than say it's got to compete, we can't we can't compete with Manchester United. Man, in the same way that A League can't compete with the the Bundesliga or the French league or the Italian league or the Premier League, we we can't do it. There's a whole range of factors for that um, uh, that's never going to happen. So what we've got to do, and, and I say it, I think we look at it the wrong way. Is we've got to make it the best league we can, and it's the same particularly this year when. Um, most of our international players and, and overseas players, most of the Matildas and overseas players, won't be in the league. And I talk around people and I, and I hear lots of doom and gloom. And, and for me, what we should be doing as a football community is saying, well, this is an opportunity for our domestic players here to play in the league, to get opportunities, and for us to actually promote them rather than having a Sam Kerr or a Caitlin Ford, etc., to promote. And that's the, the way I think we've got to look at it. And I think a great example of that is when I look at the, the women's AFL. I mean, they did an unbelievable job of promoting a, a women's league where probably most of the players probably haven't played that game for more than two or three or four years. Um, and, and they build it up. And that, so I think that's how we've got to look at doing what we do. And I think we'll kind of, as I say, I think we'll look at things back to front a little bit. So this is sort of a homegrown talent and yeah. learning to appreciate homegrown heroes, but also blooding young players yeah. for the next generation nationally. Yeah, yeah. and that, that's one of the issues that we have because we're a world game, is that we then look at these other things that happen or compare ourselves to things that are happening in Europe or South America, et cetera, et cetera. Stage? Yeah, look, I obviously agree with a lot of things Tommy said. For me, it goes back to, you know, and obviously spent 15 years at FFA. What's the objective? Like only when you only when you ask yourself that question and deliver the answer, what, what is the objective or what are the objectives of this program? doesn't matter whether it's the A-League, the W-League, an institute program, any part of the pathway, what are we trying to achieve? Because ultimately there's decisions that are made along the way that, will be a 50-50 decision that then have to lean towards the objective. Uh, for example, is the W League meant to be a commercial product? Is it a TV product? Is it to prepare players to play for Australia? Is it to give kids an opportunity to play at the highest level? Like ultimately you have to decide because sometimes there's a crossover because if it's to give kids a go, then we don't want international players here because then more Australian kids have to have a go. If it's for a better TV product and commercialization, then we need visa players who take up playing minutes, then we should have uh, done more work to keep the Matildas here, to keep it a better TV product. Or is it a different objective? I don't know, but I actually don't see any objective written. And I don't see an objective. I, I don't know what our game is trying to achieve even just at the moment, whole of football, let alone the W League. Like the W League is one dot on the map. I don't know what the A-League's trying to achieve, you know, five years of governance war. I don't know what national teams are trying to achieve. I just don't, I actually don't know what we stand for at the moment. I just don't see what our identity is. And until you answer all those questions, just touching on W-League not home and away, like the A-League's not home and away. Like we are given the draw and there's 26 matches. We are the only league that I know of in the world where not everyone plays everyone equally. Uh, there might be another one out of the 205 countries that play football. So... <laughs> 
Is there? Is there another? There might be another one. Maybe Belize or someone. But <laughs> I just don't know any other country. So we do things differently, but we're just always pulling in different directions and answering questions on a micro level where you're talking about the W League home and away. It doesn't solve whatever question we're trying to uh, answer because what's the point? What's the point of the W League? Is it to have a good Matildas team? Well, if it is, then decisions have to be made to make sure we give the best young players and the best aspiring Matildas and current Matildas the opportunity to play in the best level competition we can. And over the years, we've never done that. We've expanded, but that meant that dropped the quality. We've done this and that meant dropped the quality. We play at Sunday, 3 p.m. on January 1 at Campbelltown and it's 43 degrees, poor quality, but that's for TV. So you've got to ask yourself, what what's the rationale and the objectives of the actual league? And for me, we haven't done that over the last 15 years for A-League or W-League. So positive picture you painted there. No, I just I just want to see the goal. It's not positive or negative. I just want to see the objective because the players that have come through looking back and, and you know, with Tommy over the last 15 years, the players that came through, you know, we're very familiar with what their pathway was. And the W League was just one small part of that pathway. It was the Institute program. It was playing with the boys. It was playing 40, 50 matches a year. It was playing with the best players once they got to 14, 15 and really being given an opportunity. It was being selected in the national team at 16, 17 and, and being given young Matildas opportunity, under-17s opportunity. Like we've got a Matildas team now that still only average 26, 27 but have 100 caps under their belt. Um, so the question is this team's got to the point that they have which is extremely high and punching way above our weight. But what are we going to do for the next generation? Because they now can't break into the Matildas because the pathways aren't as evolved and, and elaborate as what they were before. These, this group is going to stay in the team till they retire. We're going to have an example of the soccerers, and this is what I've been saying for a long time now, for about five years. This team will drop off the cliff because the next group coming in won't get the opportunities that this group had, and the experience that they've had won't be the same. So the Matildas will go from being very, very competitive to extremely uncompetitive in a short space of time, just like the soccerers did, unless we address how we're going to achieve whatever objective we want to achieve. If I can jump in. The W League often just feels like a break to go on to the WSL, the NWSL, or wherever else. Like, I mean, I know COVID's different now, um, but the season's going to go from the 27th of December through, what is it, end of March? And again, it's it's so short and it feels like that every season. Like it's just a short little break and it's Stadge was right. There's no objective, even as a fan. It's like... We, we just we just sort of rock up and go support our team, but it doesn't feel like there's much of a purpose behind it. It's kind of like having a cup in a short period of time. It's like, oh, okay, this is our opposition now, and there's no real there's no real structure to it. Uh, we enjoy it immensely, and there's plenty of people out there who enjoy it, but it's just there's not much to it really. Um, I was I was going to ask both you and Greg as as fans. I mean. How do you get people to watch it? And that is an issue, isn't it? Because previously, before a lot of the Matildas sort of went off to play in Europe in the last year or so, it was it was just a flip between the NWSL and Australia. And often there wasn't really a preseason. I don't think they would sort of just they lobby in a couple of weeks short. before the season started. Yeah, so like the W League players are only starting to rock up now to their teams, whereas A League have been what probably a couple of weeks or so in preseason, and they both start on the same date. You know, so it's a bit of a inconsistency there. Greg, what are your thoughts? Uh, I get the feeling that Australian football in general uh, at the at the upper echelons has spent too many years trying to fit into other people's agendas and timelines rather than saying to ourselves, 
this is who we are, this is what we need to do, this is how we're going to go and do it. That is putting a timeline in, in place in terms of our, of our national leagues and sticking to it. We chop and change every 10 years or so, uh, rather than saying, well, this is what fits for us and where we want to be. The idea of going to uh, you know, transitioning to a winter league, for instance, um, may be a good idea, but why are we doing it in, in such a piecemeal fashion? At the moment, we're going from, um, you know, from a summer league to uh, a kind of summer, kind of uh, autumn, kind of winter league. Uh, I just don't understand the, the processes that, uh, that go behind the thinking. In, in terms of a fan, it doesn't affect me greatly because I just go anyway. It, you know, whether we're playing um, at Lambert Park or whether we're playing at, uh, you know, at Leichhardt or whether we're playing at, at Cogger or, um, or DSFS, even when it finish, gets finished, it doesn't bother me as a fan. I just go, but then I'm different. Yeah, so I'll tell you a little bit too different. <laughs> so you're a rusted on fan, Greg. I'm, I'm a rusted on fan. I'll tell you why I'm a rusted on fan because I didn't grow up with the NSL. I'm, I'm I, I predate the NSL, but I grew up on this side of the harbour, and I didn't have a I didn't have a team to follow uh, from an ethnic standpoint or a geographical standpoint. I was a kid that grew up playing. I got my first pair of boots at the age of four. They were plastic. They were Ron Barassi boots, and they came up beyond my ankles. Um, I think they lasted less than half a season. Uh, but where I grew up on the Upper North Shore, very, very strong junior football area, no rugby league. It was soccer, and it was rugby union. All the private school kids played rugby union. The rest of us played soccer. Uh, Karingai District has always been a strong district. But there's been nothing beyond a state league side and not necessarily a state league side, even at first division level. So until the A-League came along, I really didn't find that I had a team that I could support beyond you know, being a really keen follower from a distance of St George and, and you know, what was happening with, uh, with Johnny Warren through the early part of the 70s. I didn't have games to go to. So the A-League actually gave me a game to go to and a team to support, as did then the W-League when it kicked into gear. Tom, yeah, what's the situation in New Zealand? And it would be remiss of me not to ask you about Wellington Phoenix <laughs> and, and FFA's recent decision to, I'll say, decide that they wouldn't allow the rules to be more lenient and Kiwis to not be classified as foreigners. And is it true that you were going to take on a dual role and coach Wellington Phoenix? Apparently, yes, apparently. Gotta be careful. No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Turn the microphone off. The, um, the, the, well, the situation in New Zealand, it kind of mirror, is, is actually... Um, not as strong as the situation in, in Australia, to be honest. Uh, New Zealand resource-wise resource is far more limited the, than it is here in Australia. And, and New Zealand national team programs are having real issues in trying to keep up the rest of the world, particularly as the rest of the world in women's football gets better and better, stronger and stronger, and puts more resources into the game. So, you know, the, the way ahead for New Zealand is, is quite challenging, to be honest. The, the advantage New Zealand's got, obviously, is that since Australia left Oceania, 
qualify for every, every tournament. The downside of that is that the cost of going to all the tournaments is quite significant. So, so it's a, a little bit of a trade-off there where you go to tournaments, but you really don't have the resources to prepare for those tournaments. So, so the situation in New Zealand is, is quite difficult at the moment, and we need to do some things to, to improve it at the elite level. Uh, the Wellington Phoenix uh, decision was was disappointing, and I think uh, it, I can understand. Like, I think there was a governance issue and things like that involved in all of it. I, I think it was disappointing in the sense that I, I believe that a Wellington Phoenix team coming into the league is a benefit for the league, as opposed to uh, I think obviously the it, it's easy to say well. We're bringing the New Zealand team in, that's going to help New Zealand. I think there's a bigger picture here. I think a New Zealand team coming into the league can actually benefit the league. It's bringing a whole new group of players into the, the competition. Hopefully, if it was done properly, it would also give... It's also, obviously, like Wellington Phoenix men's team, give opportunities for Australian players as well. Um, and, and the same would happen with the women's team. And um, it would also have a, an opportunity to actually bring more international players into into the competition so if i was a, an australian team and playing against wellington phoenix and wellington phoenix had six or seven or eight football firms in that team i would much prefer to play against them than i would be in a, a second a, a second tier wellington team so from that perspective i was i was disappointed obviously the decisions that get made in the discussions we're going on at a, a higher pay level than my than my level. Um, it would have been really tight to get a team in this year, but uh, hopefully, hopefully, um, we'll be in the in the league this time next year. Has there been any any discuss? Have you kept discussions open with FFA about that? About next year? Yeah. Um, I I don't I don't know. I think um, that's a good question. I don't know uh, because the. Uh, obviously, the discussions have broken down for this year. I'm assuming they'll start up again at, at some time when the W League finishes, etc. And there's also, uh, you know, to complicate matters further, there's obviously the uncoupling of the A League and the the FFA, which kind of seems to be the longest divorce in history. But um, so that's another factor that comes into the, the decision making. So hopefully, when that's all fixed out. Um, as I say, by this time next year, there'll be a Wellington Phoenix team in the league. Yeah, but and I can't guarantee I'll be coaching it. <laughs> Aren't we supposed to be as one? Yeah, that would have been nice. <laughs> like, wasn't that the campaign that we've just been doing for like a decade? Yeah, that we just got the World Cup for to be as one. A hundred percent, and I, and I think Phyllis again, I, that then becomes for me more of a philosophical question is that what, again when Stash said well what does the W League stand for or what you know what do we stand for in this area is it just are we going to be like Donald Trump's America <laughs> Australia only um or are we going to be like part of although we're in Asia now still part of the region the, the Pacific the Oceania and actually showing some leadership and and um and a presence there and actually looking at giving opportunities to to those other, not just New Zealand, but you know the other countries in in the region. And should that be one of the aims? Then I guess question for anybody that it, one of the legacies should be about cementing those trans Tasman ties and with the wider Asia Pacific region. I definitely, I think we do it. You know, and and, and Stadge will attest to this. When when I look now, when when 
we were involved with the Matildas. Our, our connection with New Zealand was constant. We would have youth teams over here, B teams, uh, senior teams, etc. And I don't think there's been a game. We came to a tournament here last year. But other than that, I don't think there's been a game between New Zealand at a youth level probably for eight or nine or ten years. Will you be taking India Page Riley away from us? Um, who told you that? I'll be doing my best. Uh, if COVID hadn't come in, I might have been able to do it before now. So no, she, no. she's she's out. She's Australian. Yeah. We've got her. No. So um, I can't comment on that. Uh, we're going to get onto facilities in a second because that's quite a big issue. But just while you were talking, Alan, about uh, the development issues, particularly within the Matildas. Did, I don't know if you read FFA uh, released a study this week or they've, they've done a study this week that was reported on and it looked at hard data around a lot of different national teams and it included the Matildas and it found some worrying trends that we do have pretty much, I guess you want to call them the golden generation of Matildas at the moment, but not that much talent coming through. And I guess I want to know from you, is that a concern? And do we need to start the national team process earlier? Because... I think the US, they start at under-14s, don't they? Yeah, look, um, I beat my head against the wall for 15 years and particularly the last five um, and spoke about the look the difficulties of Australia are we don't get to play enough international competition. If we're going to talk purely performance perspective, um, our kids, it's just impossible for them to play the internationals that every other country can play. They've got more youth teams, like you said, 14s, 15s, 16s, 17s, all the way through. In Europe, for example, or in North America, you can just jump on a you know on a bus trip to go across six or seven different countries to get good matches. We can't do that. We can't do that. Now, youth teams, the last 15 years since the young Matildas began in 2004 and the 17s began in 2007, the only qualification process was going through Asia, which traditionally is, is up with Europe, the strongest in the world. Um, they've won probably about half the Youth World Cup. So we would go to a qualifying tournament, lose, and that would be the end of their international program. So that's happened consistently every single year for 14 years, other than the young Matildas that qualified in 2005 for the 2006 Youth World Cup in Russia. So we've gone through this treadmill, but somehow we've still spat out this generation of Matildas through that process. But it's finally caught up with us. It, it has caught up with us. And as I said, the... The legacy of, I guess, all the CBA disputes that have happened and Tommy sort of coached through an era where players sort of had to retire by their mid-20s or late-20s because you just can't keep living on zero money but dedicating more and more of your life and, and time to playing. Like you have to have a career and move on and pay the mortgage and whatever and ultimately a lot of players would retire mid-20s to late-20s and it gave more opportunity for these kids to come through and the kids were going through good programs, institute programs, sports high schools. They were getting, for me, as good a pathway as any boy in our country, if not better. Um, so we had this group come through that program, add W League into the mix, and now they've grown up, but they won't retire in mid-20s. No. They're going to keep playing now until their 30s and mid-30s because they can actually afford to keep playing now. They're all earning in excess of 100000 a year if you're in the Matildas and playing in Europe so you can actually afford to be a full-time pro for the first time ever and this has only happened in the last two years so the consequence of that for our Matildas and women's footballers in general is fantastic it's really good um, but the pathway underneath and the cycle underneath is choked up it's blocked it's not at a good enough level 
Um, I beat my head against the door, as I said, for about five years, trying to get new programs in, different programs in where the best players got to play with each other, where the best players got access to the best coaches, to the best competition so that they could develop in our way because we have to find different solutions to the rest of the world. We're not Spain or Italy or England where we can, you know, just jump on a, on a bus and play. We need to find different solutions, whether that's playing, having midweek matches, which we started to do, where we'd pull in the best players from each capital city to come and play a midweek match, uh, whether that's playing against boys more regularly, whether that's a combination of high-level boys and girls games. Um, I finally, when the Matildas got success after knocking on the door of all the institutes again after they got rid of football back in 2012, New South Wales Institute of Sport gave us some funding, as did the AIS to start up the Future Matildas program, which for me was just at least one band-aid of at least trying to rescue almost 20-odd players to come and train full-time and be pros to hopefully you know underpin the Matildas going forward. And we've had that program going for two years, but it's just a band-aid. It's a band-aid unless you look at the whole infrastructure and look at where the players came from. You know, and I know the PFA over the years have done the old, you know, retrospective studies on where players played to get to the level they got to. Well, you know, Tommy and I know <laughs> where they played and where Emily Van Egmond and Sam Kerr and Caitlin Ford and Steph Catley and all that, where they played. We know how they got to where they got to, but it's not being replicated for this generation. Um, and, and, you know, the cliff's coming. Like these players will play till they're 30, 32, 33. Some of those players are reaching that age already. Um, you know, uh, KK's 30, Kai Simon's 29. You know, Sammy's the 93 born, so she's 27. So we'll be up, okay up until the 2023 World Cup, in, in my view. After that, I think, you know, we're going to have a few hard lessons we're going to have to find out pretty quickly. And, you know, we're not, we're not real good students of history. You know, I'm a big cricket fan and saw the demise of the West Indies cricket team. You know, the, the kings of the 70s and 80s and by the mid-90s, they were trickling along and then boom, they haven't won a game or a test series in 25 years. Socceroos are saying, you know, we had the golden generation that was building through the 80s, through the 90s. We should have won that game against Iran. That was a fantastic team. 90s, we were just as good. 2000s, golden generation. Then those players hung on, they hung on, they hung on. No new kids came through, no National Youth League. No, no setup for young players to come through into the A League and boom, the Socceroos are now ranked 70 or 80, trying to compete with you know the smaller nations of, of Asia. So women's football is following that same trajectory. Uh, we're just 10 years behind at the moment. We're still on top, and uh, that shouldn't be a gloss uh, over what's actually happening underneath. To me. Okay, thanks. Sledge. Yeah. Um, pardon me for interrupting, Emma. Um, do you feel that the, the outflow of talent to the European clubs, um, specifically uh, headed by Caitlin and by, by Sammy, is going to change the mindset of parents at home who will see a pathway for talented youngsters to actually make a career out of the game and thus get behind them and give them the girls the push that have previously been pushed aside in favour of their sons, that may give us that uh, that talent line in uh, in years to come. Look, I guess um, I, I guess the best thing that's happening at the moment, um, and probably since maybe 2017 when when we won the tournament of nations, was that the Matildas burst onto the you know onto the limelight and mainstream really for the first time. 
you know, apart from, you know, I know Tommy's team won the 2010 Asian Cup and there's been, you know, the odd little bit of good news around the team when they qualified for the Olympics in 2016, never really mainstream. But from 2017 and that sellout game at Penrith, Sammy Kerr is as popular and famous as anyone. And this is now, again, the first generation of athlete who are pros and also the first time any young girls coming through actually have a footballer and a female footballer to aspire to become. So I agree with you that that's, that's definitely, we'll, we'll, we'll hear the ramifications of that in 10 or 20 years' time. If you talk to current Matildas, many, many, two or three, four, five out of the current group of 20 will mention Kathy Freeman as their legacy from the Sydney Olympics, someone that they aspired to be and saw achieving and saw achieving sport at a high level. So hopefully in 10 or 15 years' time we'll have have that kind of legacy from, you know, this World Cup. I think that's a massive thing that we have to ensure that happens from this uh, 2023 World Cup. The other thing is that I've seen, and my daughter's at 14 now, and she's sort of playing at that level, I've seen a much broader range of girls playing. You know, when I first started coaching in, in the late 90s and early 2000s, it was mainly girls from um, Western Sydney and mainly Anglo-Saxon girls. Now I'm seeing girls with surnames that end in itch and ski and e and, and all those kinds of things, a little bit like the Socceroos. So the broader appeal of the game has definitely opened up. We've just got to ensure now we've got more numbers, we've got more football cultures involved in, in letting their girls play and allowing them to play from a parent point of view, first and foremost, let alone resources and facilities. Um, but we've actually got a broader range of girls playing and aspiring to be those players. We've just got to ensure that the pathways are there to help them develop themselves, you know, and give them the opportunity to be as good as or better than because uh, the talent is there. You know, the talent is phenomenal. It's frightening. The 14, 15, 16-year-old girls that I've seen in the last two or three years, the talent is frightening. My concern is they won't get the necessary development at the moment uh, that, that Sammy and, and all those other girls got when they were that age. What's just? I'm just gonna just gonna move it on. Just <laughs> sorry, we're we're struggling sorry. a little bit for time. Uh, infrastructure and facilities on a societal level, and this isn't related directly to gender or to a World Cup. Um, it's it's any big event, as we learned at the Sydney 2000 Olympics. What can happen uh, when infrastructure is not put in place for the future? And I I know that football did not benefit from the 2000 Olympics and from the 2015 Asian Cup. Um, that's been a bugbear of football people for a very long time, that there aren't any real football-specific stadiums and in particular boutique stadiums. And for some reason when I was thinking about this, I remembered covering a Socceroos v Greece friendly at ANZ Stadium and Ange Postacoglu was scathing about the pitch and he said he was embarrassed to be hosting another international team on a pitch like that. This is going to be a pretty big issue going forward, especially in uh, an Australian landscape where we have so many different codes that we've got heavy traffic on most of the year round. So I'm not sure what the answer to the riddle is. The government have said that they're going to be investing money. We don't, I don't really know how much, whether it's tens of millions at this stage. But what does that look like to you, Michelle? Mm, it's, um, it's a really big challenge and, and, and just sort of thinking a little bit about Sydney 2000 and, and you look at the ongoing cost to maintain those kinds of venues. And in a former life, I, I spent some time working out with the trust. And, um, you know, we're looking at a project at one point to resurface, do a retiling project. This is aquatic related. But, um, you know, we were talking about a million dollars. So I think there's also a degree of realism in, in all of this as, as well. And, and I think 
you know, we can't, notwithstanding the economic situation in which we find ourselves, because we're, we're talking about this from a, a, a professional sporting lens, we're talking about this from a from a, a sport perspective. So, you know, I think there's also that broader issue around what is the public sentimentality around funding of facilities and venues of, of this kind. So I just sort of want to sort of put that as a as a backdrop, but notwithstanding those those kind of issues, um, might I also add that I think there are some really huge issues which our researchers certainly pronounced by virtue of what happens at clubland and and grassroots level sport, and it's maybe something you might be able to speak to as well. And we've got this kind of um, creep of of seasons and and codes and 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 the like. So yeah, I, I think <sighs> venues cost a load of money. Um, there's obviously politicking in terms of you know, what gets the most use and, and what has greatest commercial traction. Um, and, you know, if we look a little bit about sort of the government infrastructure spend and, and what they were looking at doing some years ago was was looking at it from a, a kind of a participation perspective. So you would think with the numbers of people that play football, boys and girls, um, that they would certainly get more of the pie. But it looks like that movement toward boutiques, smaller stadiums is is where we're, where we're going. Um, you know, and I also think about opportunities for regional centres and how we might actually fund regional venues and regional um, sports spaces and, and how that can actually have, and I guess this goes to strategy, how that can have um, an extended and flow on respect by virtue of, you know, playing that sport, growing the game. Uh, and, you know, I think certainly that could be something to look at. I think looking at regions, looking at those kinds of infrastructure and enabling uh, regional capacity is, is you know, we, because we are very Sydney centric, we're very much focused. Um, so I think certainly looking at somewhere like Newcastle uh, as, a, as an example. Is, is potentially a, a way to go. But as I said, that's all within a broader backdrop of what is, you know, quite challenging by virtue of where are the where's the money going to come from and, and what's the public appetite for, for advocating for that kind of expenditure at this time as well. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Just um, it's all about money in the end. But uh, the, the narrative has shifted from this sort of big stadiums, going to redo ANZ Stadium, we're going to redo um, Allianz Stadium. Unfortunately, it's too late. They've already started that one. But then... The NRL sort of seems to have led this shift, you know, towards the mini Bankwest stadiums and we're going to get more boutique stadiums in the suburbs and some in regional parts of the country as well. And yet I feel like football people have sort of been crying out for this for a, a lot longer time, but why aren't we being heard at government level? Oh, look, uh, you just touched on it. Like Peter Volandis uh, over the last seven, eight months has been the best advocate for his code that I've seen in a long time. Like the sport was on its knees in March pre-COVID and he came out swinging punches at anyone and everyone and, and got rugby league back on its feet, got him a new TV deal. Um, sponsorship's gone through the roof. Attendance has gone through the roof. State of origin, they pumped up our oh, first live crowd, biggest live crowd in the world. And he's advocating and telling state government what they what they need and he, he takes no backward step we don't have that advocate you know we had frank for a while obviously you know who had the prime minister's ear and could go to government and do that but we don't have that advocate anymore we don't have that power within government and you know that's a that's a massive issue within our sport because finding out you know the ways through government and how to access different things for women's football for women's sport for football in general and i think we've all seen i think the biggest learning for me over the last six months is how poor sport is actually to watch when there's no crowd mm. like i'm watching english premier league matches and it feels like a training session um so we've lost that whole th 
we've talked about the lack of football people in decision making. Um, you know, we sacrificed fandom for TV ratings. Um, and I hate watching a game, you know, in the A-League and seeing Amy Park empty. You know, I see 10,000 or 20,000 people in a derby and all of a sudden the product looks better. You know, I'd rather see 5,000 people at a W-League game at Lambert Park and it's packed and you feel the vibe and the passion and that's what people, fans actually want to feel. That's the tribalism, the fever and, and the excitement that people get. What Wanderers had and we, we broke it. We broke it. People were going to Wanderers games just to watch the crowd. And I remember Dennis Fitzgerald, the chairman of Parramatta Eels at the time, and he said, this is the first time I actually feel scared of football. And, you know, we've lost it. We've lost it. You know, we didn't back our fans and our active supporter groups in that crucial time four or five years ago, and everyone's now suffering from that five years later because the, the, the RBB's gone, the Victory fans are gone, W League fans, I don't even know what the fans were this year, you know, pre-COVID, but almost non-existent. And watching a game on TV with no crowds for me is a poor spectacle. Rose, what are your thoughts? Uh, give us seven more Hindmarsh stadiums and we'll be happy. Uh, <laughs> um, no, but it's true, though. From a fan perspective, I mean, you go to the game to have a good time and cheer on your team. So, you know, the Amy Parks, Hindmarsh Stadium, um, Central Coast Stadium, you know, they're fantastic. They're built for rugby or football. Mm -hmm. They're brilliant and it's true. It's it's interesting we talk about women's football active support and men's football active support because they're two completely different things and we talk about it, about it a lot on our podcast because uh, we as a group are passionate fans. Um, if anyone has seen Michelle or Chrissy at a game, you've got, you know, one's up to no good in the RBB and the other one's up to no good in the Cove and they like to bring that to the w league as well and that's what we love to see in the w league you know we love to see what the raw core over at brisbane raw are doing um the vikings at melbourne victory and like the raw core i think were the first ones um i went to a game of theirs pre-covid this year it was in like february um and i just hung out with the raw core all day so i was like you know what like we'll document this we'll see what does w league active support actually look like and it was awesome you know they're um they're at the pub or RSL, whatever it is, pre-game. They've got they've got the drums. They're putting up all the banners, and it's a community. It's a, an active support is an actual community. They make all the banners before the game. They put them all up together. They all know each other. They're all friends. They all have social gatherings, and that's the kind of stuff that we're trying to bring to the W League. And when I say we, I mean us as fans. It's all the fans that are creating the active supports. So we need the clubs to help us with creating those active supports. Um, but W League, a big issue with fan support as well is that there's a no swearing policy. So which, uh, like, <laughs> if you've ever been in an active support, you're like, well, you know, we're not going to, you know, there's got to be some kind of lenience, but because the general age at a W League game is usually much younger children. So that's something that we kind of need to work on in finding a happy medium where if you accidentally throw a profanity like you would in the A-League that, you know, security won't come over and tell you off for it because it might just be a little a little swear word, nothing too bad. So there's definite um, differences in A-League and W-League active support. Um, but I know the fans, We on our podcast, uh, The Ladies Pod, every second Friday on Football Nation Radio. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, <laughs> we Whenever we have a player on, we always ask them, Michelle, always ask them, you know, what do you think of active support? And everybody, they all want you screaming and chanting. They want what the guys have. All the women want it. 
I was going to ask you if we've all become a bit too politically correct because I had a yeah. bit of a look at your website and it describes you as the chaotic energy Australian <laughs> football media has been missing. And I had a further look then and I went to buy some merchandise, which included a Baby Roosters T-shirt and a hoodie with the words, my love is a bit like the VAR, inconsistent, unreliable and won't let me score. <laughs> uh, uh, and, no, and it's almost like nobody's allowed to say anything like that. I mean, your yeah, Twitter page, it was like, oh, um, I don't know. Mil- you might not need I it. don't know if I want to go there, actually. It was things no. like, oh, Milos Ninkovic can get into my box anytime. Or- <laughs> and um, we have a T-shirt. I think Aaliyah has a T-shirt where it says, um, I, I only came here to see Milos Ninkovic or something like that. And he loved it. He requested one. So when we met him, we gave him one. He took a photo. He loved it. And that's the thing. The players, they all they think it's hilarious. It's it's finding that line as well. You know, it's nothing abusive. It's just all good banter. Every player we've made a T-shirt about have had a good laugh. You know, Costa Barbarossa stood there, took a photo with his Barbarossas with um, one of our girls, Jackie. She got a photo with him and he signed it for her. And it's all it's all part of the fan culture. Like that's it's not our T-shirts aren't for profit or it's nothing like that. It's just to create a culture so that you go to a game and you're wearing something fun. You know, you might want to wear a T-shirt to a game that's not a jersey, you might not be into that. It's just a whole different part of the culture. It's something different that I guess we wanted to bring. Um, and, yeah, the players, they love it. And with the women's game, they they want that stuff. They want us to create T-shirts about them. When we sang um, Michelle thought of a Ella Mastrantonio chant, and we sang it to her on the pod and she was loving it. You know, we're always singing the Chloe Legazzo one and they love hearing that. Like that, you know, that gets them revved up. They want to hear that. You know, we tag them in our stories and they see it and they reply and they love it. They're, they're laughing and they love that they're over in the WSL and that the Aussie fans are still thinking about them going to games and, you know, we still remember them, you know, at their Sydney FCs or whatever other clubs that they're at and it's it's just I guess it's at the moment we feel like there's a lot of um it's it's not equal it's not equality you go to as a fan ailing w league the fan perspective active support it's not equal and we need to bring it back together because we are sort of we're treating the women's game like it's a family friendly and it's an under 10s game and it's not that's not what's going to help us when we go to the world cup or that's you know we we want to be at we we have planned our group are not going to work for like six months we are like full in for the world cup in 2023 we're like nah you know we're in we're at every single game if um if we don't get kicked out of a stadium that's probably miracle because we're going to be there and we're going to be yelling for the team and that's what we want from everybody else you know join Join the the active support, the Matildas active and, you know, have a good time and just scream for the team because that's what they want. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and, that, and that's so important, isn't it, a fandom because that's what we've really, I mean, Foz said it before, basically we've killed off the fans in both the A-League and in the W-League. Yeah, it's not a cricket game. We're not just going to, like, sit there. I don't know, I don't go to cricket. But, like, first thing I thought of, we're not just going to sit there and we just be like, oh, Sam Kerr scored a goal. Like, no, we're going to scream so we can see that backflip. And, you know, that's that's what football and soccer is all about. But it's very interesting because that's how women's sport is finding its narrative. Mm. It's because we're having to circumvent the traditional media, which does continue to value men's sport 
um, and certainly AFL and, and the NRL dominate. And might I add, it's really interesting, I think, about Peter Volandis and, and certainly from a sport administrator perspective, he was doing his job. Um, he was trying to get his code back going. But um, I think it's, it's going to be very interesting to also, and this sort of goes a little bit back to some of the commentary this morning around um, what might be the blowback there? Because the research that some colleagues and I did with two and a half thousand fans, and they were typically younger fans, was that one of the rationales behind why they purchase a membership or otherwise is because of the organisation's corporate social agenda. Um, and, you know, certainly while there was the NRL fan base that thought it was fantastic that Volandis brought football back, NRL football, there's also a different sentiment which also ran aside that narrative and that was, you know, there was the Prime Minister asking us to demonstrate a, an abundance of caution and then Volandis was saying, I'm going to get football back and I'm going to get crowds back, etc. So how that sits with the younger demographic uh, and notwithstanding the fact that there was also research just um, that came out this week and what are the key issues for the younger generation and they were that top of mind was issues around equity and diversity and then second to that was mental health and well-being so i think you know the the, the administrators of these sports ought to be very careful because the demographic of yesterday not the demographic of today and that's i guess sort of some of what i was saying earlier about thinking about maybe this opportunity COVID, is an opportunity to to reboot and rethink sport in more equitable ways. And I think what you're saying is that there is a sentiment, there is a, a cohort of fans that are highly identified, but I would imagine from an administrative perspective, how do we then get, how do we rust on the next generation of fans? So my five-year-old and my two-year-old, they're going to be the next generation. So what is it that, how are we going to get that vested interest and, yeah. and that growth? And I think, you know, certainly the statistics are telling us that it's going to be, what is it that the organisation stands for? What is its corporate social agenda and, and the like? So I think there's very much a sentiment and, and you know, full credit to Volandis and, and the AFL. But two, you had athletes breaking the biosecurity bubble, all of these kinds of things which, you know, resonate with, with, with fans, particularly those that sit outside of the ardent devotee. So if I'm a, or maybe I'm interested in AFL or maybe I'm interested in, in NRL, well, that might be a decision why I don't support or why I don't invest financially in purchasing a membership. And our research tells us that's what's happening. People are saying, well, we're not, we're not going to associate with that organisation because it doesn't align with our values. Well, and it's a community as well. That's everywhere around the world, you're, you're part of a community, you know. You support AS Roma, you're part of their community. Yeah. Liverpool, everywhere else, yeah. it's that's what it is and that's what we want to feel. That's what's important here in Australia is because, okay, our league may not be the best in the world, but that's that's the thing. You can go see live football. You can go see some of the best footballers around. You know, you'll have your Ninkoviches and Del Pieros and stuff come here. And we had Sammy Kerr. You know, over the years, the amount of amazing W League players that we've had and uh, it seems to just go over people's heads that we've had them here. Mm. You can see them in your own backyard. You can meet them. You can – it's it's, it's an awesome near, thing. near role models. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Tom, I oh, want to ask you, it's it's sort of related because it's a bit of a, a yesterday versus tomorrow attitude um, and it is a bit of an emotive subject, but female coaches in sport, coaching either women's teams or men's teams, 
how important are they? And, you know, there's, there is this big discussion about there should be more female coaches coaching men's football. We had recently, um, this is not related to football and it actually traverses two sports, but former Diamonds netball coach Lisa Alexander applied for the North Melbourne AFL coaching position and she wasn't given an interview. And there were people up in arms about that saying, well, why doesn't she have the right experience? And I guess what I'm asking is what classifies as the right experience and and how do we sort of create um, spaces where, well, A, women know that it's a viable pathway for them and B, how are they given the right coaching courses? And is the other element that female football, women's football just is a lot younger than men's football and there just aren't, there's just a paucity of female coaches around at the moment. I think that's a valid point. I, th- I think, again, it's one of those very emotive subjects. But And, again, I think we look at it the wrong way around. And I know when I was Matilda's coach, there's a push to say we need to get female coaches on the national team staff, et cetera, et cetera. When actually what you actually need to start to do is build up a mass of female coaches. And that starts, like, at the bottom of the pyramid. And one of the things that we did back then is at the state championships under 14 and 16 levels, that so that was probably about 20 different teams. He said, well, that's where we need to start having female coaches on the staffs there. But we actually started looking at it from there as opposed to starting looking at it from here and build up a mass. So that's one point. I think the second point is that you made is that professional women's football is still very young. Stage pointed out most of the players that... Uh, coming through the Matildas at my time until my later time at the Matildas, um, had to give up the game because they had proper jobs and they had other things they had to go to. They weren't professional footballers, whereas males have been professional footballers for you know long, long time. So it's only now in this generation of players that are actually really what we consider to be full-time professionals. So there now is a pathway. So uh, so. In saying that, though, you, I think uh, as a football community, we need to be proactive in in trying to increase the number of female coaches. Uh, and, the, I mean, the other reality is that it's a pretty brutal occupation. And once you actually get in there, it really doesn't matter if you're a male or a female. You aren't actually, I don't believe you're actually judged as a male or a female. You're judged on your results. And males and females get punted from jobs uh, equally. In, in a sense. But in reality, if we have a, a, a B license or an a, a, a pro license or an A license and you have 40 male coaches on it, you probably only have four female coaches. The reality is out of those 40 male coaches, probably only 20% of them end up getting a full-time job. So it's it's for me, it's a numbers thing. We need to start building up the numbers. And then um, encouraging them, encourage females to to keep in the profession. Probably the other reason is that females are a lot smarter than us males, so they actually get proper jobs. Um, but uh, the and I think and this is another reality is in in relation to that is it it is a bit of a tougher job on females because whether and and don't take this the wrong way is it, when you're in a relationship and you have children, the reality is the female is generally ends up being the person that looks after the children. The guy is the irresponsible one that shoots off and, and does, you know, can take a job here and there, whatever. So it's a much tougher job for, for females than it is, than it is for males. Um, and, and as I say, but I think as, 
also, if you look at it now, if I look at some of the top uh, countries in, in international football, a lot of them are coached by female coaches. If you look at the the WSL in England, the professional league there, there's, there are percentage-wise a significant number of, of female coaches. So the process is beginning to happen. We need to continue to encourage it. And I think as more and more players become professional, they'll want to stay in the game and they'll want to stay in coaching. But also one last point before I rattle on too much. Um, it's not just coaching. We need to, you need to have females in all the other aspects of the game, whether it's the administration. And if you look now, you know, you've got Sarah Walsh, ex-international head of women's football. You get Katie Gill, uh, head of the, the PFA. Uh, you get Amy Duggan on the board. Ray Dower now is technical advisor. So, so that is, that is actually beginning to happen and, and it needs to continue. Um, I think Michelle, you were able to speak to that. Yeah, and, and I think you're absolutely right. I think we're certainly starting to... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and might I add um, that certainly those... Because um, my, my research involved both male and female administrators, and it's really interesting, I think, what you say there by virtue of it makes it more difficult, and these are around these societal norms, because there were those men in senior positions in Australian sport organisations whom I spoke to that wanted to take, for example, a more active role in terms of their fathering, or there was one particular um, senior member of one of the organisations that I spoke to who was looking at negotiating a four-day working week. And so that was very much frowned upon because it wasn't in accord with the norm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I guess COVID is an example of, of I guess, how we've seen a disruption of the norm and our lives have, have changed. And, and yeah, absolutely, these are kind of the issues. But the other thing I, I must say that I found was that um, the women I interviewed, they negotiated the norms and the issues and there was a degree of fear around calling out issues of, of what they perceived as inequity. But I think it was also the case that very often the men that I spoke to, there was a genuine desire to actually see more women involved um, in the sport. As you said, it's not just, it's the board, it's the middle management level. Uh, so yeah, I think that that certainly is, we're starting to sort of see some of this movement, but, um, but equally there was this degree of fear that for those women that if they couldn't um, adhere to this kind of norm, the unabridged commitment to work, then there were their issues on, you know, by virtue of their career. And one particular woman comes to mind, she was quite funny, actually, she was quite senior, uh, middle management role and she actually was on the road and she had taken a, a period of time off and the lunchroom's a fabulous place for conversations in all workplaces but um she was talking to colleagues about the fact she was going to take a month off the road instead of traveling she was going to be at home with her kids and um a male sort of colleague said oh well you know why is it that you garner special treatment is is the third baby um, on the way and um, she said ordinarily she would have just smiled and, and walked away but she said well no actually I'm not intending on having any more children um, I've had my tubes tied uh, and so it was really interesting to see how that mothering discourse and those expectations around her mothering role and the fact that she'd taken a break for that period was frowned upon um, so I guess that's why it goes to that that idea of you know how do we change the culture well, it, it, and often it's that the you know I don't know if anyone's seen the book Lean In 
uh, or read the book Lean In, and it's always about women leaning in and women changing. But I think it's it's also about cultural change more broadly, and you know, and that goes for opportunities for everyone, notwithstanding intersections with issues around ethnicity, um, sexuality, etc. If if you don't meet the norm, then you cop it, and it's sort of projected more so in sport because of its history, I guess. Yeah. Um, we're going to go to questions in one minute. I just really want to, before we do, ask Greg um, about the importance of history in creating a legacy for the Women's World Cup. Um, try and keep it relatively short. I know this could be a potentially, this is a broad answer, but for, for both the history for both women and for Indigenous football as well and, and how serious investment should be injected into Indigenous football. It, it all comes down to culture. It's the discussion that's sort of flowed through most of the day today. Uh, it's often heard that, you know, we don't have a football culture in this country, um, which I just call bullshit because I'm sorry, you can go down to any any football ground in any suburb in Australia on a Saturday morning in, um, in any suburb and you will find football culture. It exists. You've got the parents getting up there, setting out the field. You've got coming and going. That's the beginning of football culture. It's only a small culture, but it's culture. It exists. What history does is add to that culture. Yes, we may not have, you know, the culture of single um, code countries, but you know, no other country has got four football codes. So, yes, we've got to spread it. Football history is an essential part of, of building that country, uh, that culture, because as we heard earlier, it's about stories. The stories are there, you know, whether they be from what happened on November 16, 2005, or what happened on November 5, 1997. They're part of the story. But there are thousands of stories going back to 1880 that are there to be told. Uh, somebody touched on the, I think it was Peter, touched on the Joe Edger story. Joe Edger was the hardest away game in, in New South Wales in the 1880s. And he was right. It's it's a 600-foot drop from the top of the Joe Edger Valley down to where the, the shale mine was where these players played. And teams have literally came up from Sydney and, as Pete said, they got taken down by a, a, um, a flying fox to go down and play their game. You know, they got wined and dined beforehand because it's been a long trip up. You need to have... So nobody walked away from Joe Edger with a win. It just didn't happen. Uh, and, and it's just little stories along the way, whether they be um, the girls from from the, the tours of the 80s having to uh, get their, their secondhand men's strips, have to sew their numbers on, have to sew their badges on, uh, play six games in nine days in a tournament and you know, dry their underwear on the fan going around the, the room. It, you know, it's, it's all part and parcel of... Uh, of the stories that build up the culture that uh, are essential in in bringing the game to a, a broader a broader audience. As far as the 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 indigenous side of the game is concerned, uh, you know we touched upon um, upon Charlie Perkins and on John Moriarty. The, their story was uh, was it's an extraordinary read if you if you ever get the chance to read John Moriarty's book. Uh, the the chapters dedicated to to the guys from South Australia that, that came out of that period, um, very isolated, very isolated. They, you know, the, the guys all came down and they stayed at a, at a school and 
they you know they watched a, a state under 16 team kicking a ball around as a at a pre-season um training match next door and they said we can beat these guys this was the south australian under 16 state team and these bunch of kids from the, the mission school next door went out and they put a challenge to them and they beat them like seven one and these guys were then all tapped on the shoulder and gone oh you know you can play do you want to come and play with us their story began that way uh, the, the other stories um harry williams for instance he's not a kid from a mission he's a kid from peakhurst mm -hmm. he grew up through the st george association here in sydney just going through the normal channels there's there are stories out there and they have to be uncovered but we also have to build the indigenous story from the ground up and having one john moriarty out there doing his thing is is great having jade do his thing having adam serrata do his thing that's great but it's it's individuals it's not the system doing it and it's the system that needs to create it we cannot rely on individuals to make our game better it's got to come from the collective and the collective starts at the top thanks greg i'm going to throw the floor to the floor now for questions all right, we've got time for two questions. Pablo first. Anyone else want to ask a question? You're up first at the back. You're in second in line. Fantastic. Uh oh, this is my daughter. Thanks. Hi. <laughs> my name's Pablo. Uh, I've got multiple roles inside and outside football, um, including advocacy for fans, um, th pr predominantly through FFA, but also avenues. That lead into the discussion about infrastructure, I think it, what came across there to me was it's not just physical infrastructure as a legacy, it's social infrastructure and, and the fans are at the core of that. But just so, not back to physical infrastructure, we just heard recently South Australian government I think is going to pump some money, tens of millions into improvements to Hindmarsh Stadium. But it's not enough. I mean... What about the northern and southern ends where the active fans are? What about safe standing, shade uh, as climate change accelerates? So rather than just leave it up to the local organising committee and FFA, we need a coalition of support to advocate for a better legacy. And it does come down to money, to be heard. We've be, got to get on the front foot. So I'm throwing that open. Is that something that well, Matilda's active and, and others can really have, have galvanise. You ever, um, have you ever stood in the Red Army at 5.30pm on a Sunday in Adelaide's 38 degrees? It is insane. And that's one of the things. They're not, there's no cover for that section where the active support are. Um, it's, it's very important to look after the fans and where the fans will be and where the core fans will be. And as a fan, you're, you will always go support your club, but you're less excited about like a Sydney Derby at ANZ Stadium. You're mm. not, you're not pumped for that. You know, it's just like, oh, well, we're going to, we're going to have a good time, but it's not going to be like it normally is. So it's a stadium is, is very important from, I guess, yeah, from a fan's perspective. And it is very important to look after them because. Yes, they're, you know, Highmarsh Stadium are now going to have enough change rooms or, you know, multiple teams or whatever or not, um, but the fans will still be in that 38-degree sun in summer. I don't know if I answered your question right. No, that's good. I'm just throwing it open. <laughs> just, just in terms of money, the 2015 Asian Cup, uh, there was a lot of money thrown at the at a ground in Cessnock to bring the Japanese team to 
to Cessnock to use it as a training base. Um, there's not been a football match played on that ground. It's mm. the rugby league ground in Cessnock. So all the money that the government and the FFA put into that that surface uh, has gone to benefit another code. I think that's a good point. I mean, the 2015 Asian Cup, uh, we thought there were going to be a lot more benefits for local communities through infrastructure improvements, but it didn't seem to really happen that much. There was a lot of goodwill. I went up to the hundred and saw some of it firsthand, and the Japanese fans who were engaged on that were, were amazing, I have to say. Uh, but what's being planned for 2023 along those lines and what will be the legacy for the regional communities? No? I mean, yeah. Who knows? I think it's rhetoric. I think Bank West is an interesting example of co-tenancy. Uh, I don't know if you've been to the stadium, but I think it, it actually speaks... Um, we did some fan experience surveys there and it was very much about place revitalization. And you're absolutely right um, that it, it, it's not just the stadium, but the surrounding local. And um, we actually found that um, Bank West, that is the, the NRL, the Eels sort of fans actually saw it as theirs, but it's, it's obviously, it's just a cement and you're not allowed to have any permanent infrastructure, etc. But I think that's an interesting example of how it can be a space owned by more than one team. Uh, and so I think that's an inner, what was that, about 30-odd thousand, 30-odd thousand, 30-odd mil? Um, I think it's like the IKEA version uh, of the stadia. But notwithstanding, we talk about history, that venue sits on the local swimming pool. So that region, that Parramatta region, has no swimming pool now. So there's always a cost in all of these things as, as well. But I think that's an interesting example of revitalisation of place. Um, and, you know, they're, they're all, I don't know if anyone's been there, but the outdoor area of that location is, is really done particularly well in terms of there's basketball courts and there's active um, play, there's sedentary play for. So, yeah, I think, if, again, this is about strategy and this is about saying, well, how is it that yeah, we need infrastructure to play elite football but how is it that we can service more than just elite football? And that's, that's I guess, the what's going to resonate with government. Okay, well, what else can we get out of it? Well, Bank West is a stadium that can be occupied by three, four codes. Um, four teams can call it home. Um, it's close to other infrastructure, e.g. it's just a walk from the, the train station. And then it sits within a broader narrative around what Parramatta is trying to do with that as like a second CBD. So I think that's I think it's interesting. I think you asked a really important question. Yeah. Thank you. I think another potentially important infrastructure issue with the 23 World Cup is that hopefully there'll be a spike on girls playing soccer with all the countries and things that are coming here. So for me, the infrastructure is not so much about stadiums, but it's getting facilities that club football can use, that a participation level can use rather than having to share fields and do all, all sorts of other things. So, or change rooms. Often change there's no rooms. girls' change rooms. There's no yeah. safe place to actually change, yeah. particularly in Western Sydney. Yeah. So for me, that would be more important than <clears throat> the stadium aspect of it. So hopefully we'll get, so I'd say, more venues for uh, for people out there in Clubland. Hi, I'm Tilly. Um, 
actually Greg's daughter, so it won't direct this specifically at him, but you guys have touched a lot on the Olympic legacy that 2000 left. And as a young girl growing up, that was so critical to me and the reason that I got into initially athletics. And then the same thing followed suit in 2006. I started playing football after witnessing our success in, um, in the 2006 Cup. So my question is, how contingent is this legacy that we're attempting to create going to be on the Australian and, to an extent, the New Zealand team's actual success in gameplay going to be into 2023? <laughs> Unfortunately, you're the not the majority. The research tells us that young girls don't actually engage in long-term sport participation because of most like hosting large-scale sport events. In Sydney 2000, we saw a massive spike in participation and then it just falls down below. So I think we're fighting a few battles and I, I think that's whereby it's the, the like how do you make a, a safe place and how so we took, I've heard a lot about multiculturalism and diversity, but that's quite different to inclusivity. So how do we create an inclusive space? And you know I think the fan supports are fantastic and so forth, but that's not necessarily a safe space for everyone. Um, so, yeah, I don't want to, like, rain on a parade, but unfortunately it's actually not that girls donate. It's They aspire to, to to near, the research says, that they aspire to near role models. So it's going to be their female coach at local ground ball ground, which is going to be the aspirant for then their future player and spectatorship. And so that goes to your issue around, well, looking at the grassroots development uh, and then it's the female coach or, and it, it's often the case that girls will, you know, um, have male role models because they, they don't have a male coach. But, yeah, I think that's really interesting. Do you think we're looking into a new era, though, now? Do you think that it could change down the track given what the Matildas stand for? And that, I, I don't know if the word arguably is correct here, but arguably they're more popular than Socceroos. Yeah, and but unfortunately that doesn't then equate with girls' participation in sport. Mm. And that's because of all the, the other variables that impact and, and cost um, yeah. for young. Like talking to a school teacher just last week with some research around increasing girls' physical activity, and this particular girl is one of seven kids in a Western Sydney school. They can only afford to have sport for, for two kids, so it's the two elder brothers um, that, that gets board paid for. But the, the sports teacher was able to hear about and she's a really good football soccer player and the school has actually been able to support. It's $100 or $99 for the term. So they've actually got a fund that will support her involvement in, I guess, what is sort of a, I think it's a semi sort of school-based. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, and then it's these issues around, um, you know, is it, culturally acceptable is it religiously acceptable and yeah so we see the world through this lens but yeah when you start to talk to these young girls in particular there's some of the impediments yeah. like I know myself as a 30 year old female now if I had these type of role models like the Matildas yeah. and the success and that knowing that I could actually do this as a career whereas usually you're told this isn't a career for women this is just a hobby or yeah. you know when you get to um I don't know, you get to a certain team or you got to play with the men now, you got to play with the boys and, you know, the women were kind of an afterthought. That's all changing now. Mm. Um, I'm hoping that, you know, as we go down the track that we see a bit of a, a difference, I guess, and that 
the, the yeah. girls don't drop off. Sorry, you know, answer your question. I think mm. you're right. I think if you've got that broader aspiration and then when there's a filter, there's a, I guess it's a little bit like elite sport pathways. It's mm. the same thing. So, you know, we know that a lot of girls stop playing sport when they hit puberty. So how do we, how do we, you know, continue that? And then how do they then aspire to be the next set girl, whoever it might be? So no, I, I, I don't disagree with you, but I think there's some stuff that needs to happen at the bottom. Yeah, yeah but I think you're right. And as I said, I think the, the kind of work that collectives, fan collectives do is really interesting because it is a space where people can engage um, without necessarily all of the other minutiae of barriers that, that come with it. Um, and yeah, so I think it'll, you know, it, but unfortunately the research tells us that at this stage that's not the case. And before we conclude, because I know we're running out of time, I do want to do a shout out that on our pod we had um, Girls Football Development Academy or Association. I don't remember if I got that right, correct. So they're, um, they, are, I think they're the, Australia's first girls only football academy. So, you know, school, school kids age. Um, and they, they keep getting sold out. Uh, the, they do school holidays and sold out yeah. every, you know, oh, I think they did the first school holidays, yeah, just being and sold out. So now it's just starting to happen. So that's pretty exciting for, yeah, for girls everywhere. Yep, I think I think Adrian's giving me the eyes now, so we've got to wrap up. But thanks so much to all of our panellists. That was a fascinating discussion. So thank you to Emma Kemp for that possession on Opportunity Knocks, making 2023 count for the next 100 years of women's football. And thank you to all the panellists as well, Michelle, Tom, Alan, Rose and Greg. Thank you also to the Johnny Warren Football Foundation, Synergy Sports, Football Nation Radio, and of course, for providing the live stream, Streamgate. We'll be back next week with another session from the Football Writers Festival. In the meantime, keep enjoying your December and stay safe. Thanks for listening to Football Insiders from the team behind Fair Play Publishing, home of the Football Writers Festival. Be the first to get inside access by subscribing. And to get more, head to fairplaypublishing.com.au.